You might be wondering, here it is after Easter, and we're still talking about the resurrection. Well, that's because I believe that God has us in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 for a reason. And it's for us to be looking at the resurrection of Christ and how his followers will be personally, bodily resurrected one day as well. He has us looking at these as timeless truths for these troubled times that we are living in. Do you remember those child Mad Lib stories that you might have participated with as a child or maybe even as an adult? They're, they're stories in which there are blanks. Words are left out of the story, and you're supposed to fill them in maybe randomly or in a way that you think is going to make the story more interesting. Well, the weather this past Wednesday reminded me of something that I read online when we were all just starting to feel the effects of our present situation. It, it was treated our situation as if it must be a mad lib fairy tale filled in by a child that would go something like this. Once there was a virus and it got so bad that they had to cancel school and it made it so that everyone ran out of toilet paper. And then it snowed. Of course, what we're going through is feeling less like a fairy tale right now. As students struggle to finish their schooling, as parents struggle to work from home, or as parents struggle without having any work at all. This past Easter, last week, the fact that we weren't able to worship together, it was grieving. But I don't think it was any less significant. If anything, Christ's resurrection helps us to see beyond the present life of isolation that we're experiencing. Christ's resurrection helps us to see beyond that into the afterlife, especially understanding that Christ's resurrection has made it so that his followers will be resurrected as well. I hope that your Easter was even more significant because of the time that we have spent here in 1 Corinthians 15. Recall that the Corinthians were unsure if believers would be raised from the dead. We've learned from the scriptures that our future resurrection is ensured by Jesus' resurrection, by his resurrection. Let me remind you of the amazing endgame truths that we were focusing on. And then the Apostle Paul follows with verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean? by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? The vast majority of the evidence for this verse is is pointing to the idea that those who practiced this believed that their baptism was vicariously applied to those who had already died. A vicarious baptism was being carried out. Key to what Paul, the Apostle Paul is getting at here is, I think, in the question, what do people mean by doing this? Leading to a point of his glory of being in everything and that everything is in existence for his glory. And I believe the next statement, while it's one of the toughest verses to understand in the Bible, I believe that the next statement in verse 29, it's there to illustrate I believe, that even pagan people, even pagan practices or pagan ideas that might have made their way into some of the practices of the Corinthian church, 
that even these pagan practices, unbiblical practices, without condoning them at other times. For instance, as he's sharing the gospel in Athens, he references the fact that they have an idol that is attributed to an unknown God. And he references this idol and springboards from that into sharing the gospel with them, saying, I basically represent this God that you do not know. By doing that, Paul was not saying, so it's okay that you worship this idol to this unknown God, simply by referencing it. And that's what Paul is doing here when he says, what do people mean by doing this if they don't deep down believe in a personal resurrection? So I think Paul is arguing that embedded in the hearts of every person is the truth of the eternal God. And these embedded truths are evidenced by practices like what would have been practiced at that time, I guess, being baptized for the dead. The fact that mankind expects there to be something beyond the grave means that he generally has a hope for something beyond the grave. And it also means that mankind generally expects accountability beyond the grave. What I want to get at here with you is that a person's doctrinal belief matters. It affects their choices in life. And a person's doctrinal beliefs regarding resurrection from the dead, it does show in their behavior whether they realize it or not. We see in verses 30 through 34 how what we believe about the afterlife affects our everyday behavior. And we see this from the Apostle Paul sharing and asking the question rhetorically, why would I be putting up with this? Why would I be going through with this if I do not believe in a personal resurrection? So he asks this rhetorical question in verse 30 and following, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. In other words, he's saying, by all that I am invested in with you and, and which I'm grateful to Christ that I am doing. I do it by dying every day. He says, what do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. As we look at these verses, we're looking at how our resurrection beliefs affect our lives. This is to be a reality check for us. Our resurrection beliefs affect our lives. Our beliefs are playing out before us these days. Do I trust God that he is still in control? Should I be concerned about the well-being of my fellow man? What should that look like in my daily behavior? Should I obey my governing authorities? How does obeying my governing authorities relate to our call to assemble together as a body? These questions are answered by our beliefs about truth. Verses 30 through 32, in them the argument flows from Paul's life. And his life is a daily difficult investment in eternity, but it's well worth it in light of God's glory. With Paul as our example, from verses 30 through 32, I want to help you to see here how 
Your beliefs should affect your behavior. Paul asks this question, why are we in danger every hour? He's saying, basically, on your behalf, I die every day. Everywhere Paul went, the gospel caused religious people to want him dead. It caused secular people to want him dead. God's enemy was putting up a fight everywhere that the Apostle Paul took the gospel. Jewish leaders who would never accept Jesus as the Messiah, Gentiles, People who didn't want their ways of life disrupted by how Jesus changed people's lives. They all came against the Apostle Paul and the message of the gospel. And yet the gospel moved forward in people's hearts and minds and it changed their lives and their behavior. In 2 Corinthians 11, we see listed off many of the challenges that the Apostle Paul faced for the gospel. We can read about this in verses 25 through 28. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." And Paul's challenging life didn't take God by surprise. In fact, God planned that his kingdom would progress through difficulty. As a part of Paul's conversion to Christ, God directed a man named Ananias to him. In Acts 9, 15 through 16, we see that the Lord convinced Ananias by telling him to go to Paul and saying, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. One writer asks, Why endure suffering and danger if death ends it all? Meaning, if everything ends in death, why suffer for nothing? Paul asks, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? By humanly speaking, he's saying, figuratively speaking. And Ephesus was in the province of Asia, and Paul had a lot of trouble in this whole region. And he's relating his trouble to the practice of the Romans, of sending prisoners and sometimes even Christians into an arena filled with wild animals. Paul could even be speaking figuratively of Acts 19 about a huge riot that broke out in the city of Ephesus and it was spawned by the craftsmen that were upset. Paul was verbally torn to shreds, if you will, by those who saw the gospel as creeping in on their idol-making business and it became a riot that enveloped most of the city. As I mentioned, the idea of a life after death existence and accountability still could not be avoided and can't be avoided by most people. But yet the idea that there was no physical life after death was still prevalently taught just as it is taught today. As is common today, there was a, there was a vague approach to the afterlife that led to a fatalistic mentality. And we see this as Paul quotes a common understanding. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. 
for tomorrow we die. Paul reflects that he would be a prime candidate for this laissez-faire mentality. Why go through so much hardship? Why not just party till you can't party anymore? Sadly, the Greek historian Herodotus, he wrote about a custom among the wealthy Egyptians. You see, when they would throw a banquet, it was common for a, at the, toward the close of the banquet time, a coffin would be carried around by some of the servants. And in that coffin would be a dummy made out of wood, but it was made to look like a dead person. And the message was clear as they would take it around and show it to the guests and even say, gaze here and drink and be merry, for when you die, this will be you. Nothing more than this. But yet, this opportunity to eat and drink and be merry, it only happens for a season. So you better take advantage of it. But rest assured, there won't be anything more than just you, a dead body in a coffin. You can imagine the effect that this would have on the banquet attenders. Well, let's keep partying. Why not? So I would summarize Paul's statements here as basically saying, why do I risk myself as I do for issues of doctrinal truth if the dead in Christ aren't raised? Why am I choosing to risk my life all the time? In fact, by earthly standards, I die a slow death more than I live. If there's no resurrection of the dead... For what reason would I choose to take on the religious wild beasts, if you will, of this region, much like our brothers who die in the Roman arena? If there's no resurrection of the dead, we might as well follow the common approach. Let's party today like we'll die tomorrow and never have to pay the tab. In contrast to this, a biblical worldview looks at life in this way. We should follow Jesus wherever he leads because Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, his followers rise from the dead to eternal life. Even if it were to mean being in danger every hour, even if it seems like we spend our life dying a thousand deaths, we take our stand amidst opposition that accuses our gospel of being arrogant, exclusive, and intolerant because there is a glorious afterlife that we are living for. And we hope that more will join us through the narrow gate of Christ alone for salvation. No, we don't believe, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Instead, because the dead are indeed raised, we should say, let us sacrifice whatever we must today for God's gospel mission, because tomorrow Christ may return for us. So Paul is arguing for the truth of believers' future resurrection, and he's arguing from the sacrifices that he is making. He's saying, if I'm not looking toward a future bodily resurrection, why would I risk my life? Why would I totally invest my life in an eternal payoff if there's no bodily resurrection? We've been told that the way that we're living today needs to be with a wartime mentality toward this virus that is affecting our world. This means cutting back on non-essential travel, non-essential visits, non-essential activity. It means accepting limitations. It means adjusting in order to gain ultimate victory in the end. And I know that there's debates going on about how this should be done and how much of this this should be done. But during our present crisis, I want to ask you this. Do you have any sense 
of what the Lord's plan might be for you during these days. Thinking of this as a wartime mentality, is it possible that you might stand before the Lord and He might say, I had something for you to do, but you never showed up to get your marching orders? In our passage, Paul is arguing for what we should believe from how he's living his life. For you and for me, we need to be looking at our lives and see if they match up to what we say we believe. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, believing that he died and rose again for you, paying for your sin and offering you his resurrection, if you trust that you will experience a bodily resurrection with Christ— Are you sacrificing and investing your life now like you truly believe that? How are you presently living out what you say you believe about the afterlife? Can you say, I try to die every day, or it's my goal to die every day? Can you say, I die to what my flesh wants to be doing right now? And that's so that I can live as God desires, knowing that it affects my eternal rewards. And it can affect other people's eternity in general as they watch me. Can you say, I'm investing my time and resources in what I know God wants me to be about right now. Because right now is temporary and my eternal home is what matters. As we examine how much our lives are influenced by biblical truth, I think God wants us to be aware of the influence that other people's beliefs can have on us. From verses 33 through 34, I hope that you will see how others' beliefs can affect you. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If I could rephrase for you what I think the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's telling his readers, check yourself. Many of the people you are listening to do not have any knowledge of God, or they don't believe that you can truly have knowledge of these things. Here's the deal. Bad company corrupts. It ruins good morals. In other words, if you let those with wrong beliefs influence you, I guarantee it is corrupting your decisions. You need to wake up from the idea that it doesn't matter and stop the sinful patterns that their influence has encouraged. And he basically closes with saying, if some of what I'm telling you makes you feel bad, it's because it should. In verse 33, he quotes a proverb, bad company ruins good morals. This idea of good morals can mean correct thinking, correct beliefs. Bad company can affect your doctrinal beliefs. And your doctrinal beliefs, of course, affect your life. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, state it this way, Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what is his care with? God's truth. He says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Prosperity in our decisions in life 
does not flow from listening to the advice of people who are living by unbiblical ideas about God and the afterlife. Leon Morris says this, Paul is saying that keeping the wrong kind of company, specifically people who deny the resurrection, may well corrupt good Christian habits and turn people away from the truth. He basically says in verse 34, come back to your senses. It's very likely that the highbrow skeptics of the day claimed to be sober thinkers and treated Christians like they were the dreamers. This would explain why Paul refers to their wrong thinking as a drunken stupor, saying they're actually the ones who aren't thinking straight. In other words, they may be accusing you of living in a fantasy world, but the person thinking there's no resurrection is actually the one who needs to come back from la-la land. When he says stop sinning, the tense he was referring to is stop what you are doing. People were living more sinfully because they were believing the lies that they were being told by their culture, specifically that there was no resurrection of the dead. Regarding the explanation for some have no knowledge, you might be aware that the term knowledge here is the Greek term gnosko. I share this with you because it's using the word with the letter A in front of it, meaning none of this. It's agnosian. Agnosian, no knowledge. We have the term agnostic which means believing that we can't truly know anything for sure. Agnosticism is what Pierce Hawthorne calls the lazy man's atheism. The idea is that these believers were allowing people's concept that, well, what can you truly know, so just live this life. They were allowing it to affect their behavior in this life. And Paul was pointing it out to them and saying, you should be ashamed I recently heard an interview with a man named Guillaume Chalot. You know who he is, right? Of course. Well, I didn't know who he was either. But, for Microsoft but, before he worked for Google, who owns YouTube. And the project that he was working on when he came to Google and working on YouTube was to help to increase the amount of time that people would spend watching YouTube uh, consecutively for a longer length of time. So he developed the algorithm that would help find recommendations of videos to watch next, and they were based on the person's interest. He developed a personal concern about this as he saw people were developing one-sided opinions off of YouTube because of the work that he did on these algorithms. And this is because their thinking becomes based on similar arguments of one video after another, just reinforcing the same ideas. And these videos and these arguments pile up as suggestions for what they should watch next. He described that his concern is that people live in what he calls a filter bubble living inside of a bubble of a single opinion because all other ideas are filtered out. And it's one thing if you're just consuming one cat video after another. But when people are informing their consciences, when they're informing their idea on biblical issues, on spiritual life, about how they should live, when they're informing these with YouTube videos, they're going to end up very lopsided. They're just going to get one unbiblical idea after another if they're just basing them on YouTube suggestions. 
The fact is, we need to be able to run anyone's ideas through the filter of biblical truth. A common thing that I've noticed recently, and maybe you have, it's what I call Oprah repentance. Maybe you've seen these on Facebook where someone just decides, you know what, it's time for me to come out and just say it. I've made a lot of poor decisions in my life. I've, I've, uh, it's kind of been three steps forward, two steps back, but hey, I don't regret any of them. They have made me who I am. What used to be considered come to Jesus moments have become come to self-realization moments because people aren't listening to the authority from beyond our world and they are listening to whatever authority over the internet makes them feel better about their situation even as they recognize I need to change. The fact is, admitting that we haven't always been the most brilliant, it doesn't bring anyone closer to Christ. The gospel is meant to free us from guilt and shame, yes, but that is because our guilt and shame were laid on Christ. But shame for our sin is what brings a person to the gospel. Admitting that we haven't been brilliant all of our lives doesn't move a person anywhere helpful. What is needed is confession, repentance. Admitting that we make poor decisions isn't confession. Confession is admitting and agreeing with God, agreeing with his absolute truth that the way that we have behaved is wrong, and it is wrong by his authoritative standard. These are just a couple examples of how other people's beliefs can affect you. They can affect the way that you relate to God. They can affect the way that you approach life. The question that we must be asking of the opinions that we are hearing is, does this opinion agree with the authority of God given in his word? Everything else is just opinion. In our present circumstances of this global pandemic, I found it interesting to read about a plague that took place in the city of Athens, not very far from Corinth, where Paul wrote this letter. It was interesting to read how people's beliefs about the afterlife, their belief about resurrection, how it affected the way that they behaved amidst this horrible plague that they were experiencing. The Greek historian Thucydides writes about this in one of his books about the Peloponnesian War. The plague he wrote about decimated the city of Athens in 430 B.C. And what's sadly interesting is how it affected the way people behaved. But as I've been arguing from this passage, it's their beliefs about the afterlife that affected the way they behaved also. Eventually, things broke down altogether in the society of Athens. Men committed crimes openly rather than subtly. The wealthy individuals, they they spent their money recklessly because they reckoned that they would be dead long before their money ever ran out. Values like virtues and honor broke down. Thucydides wrote this, Neither the fear of the gods nor the laws of men awed any man. They didn't bring awe to any of them. He goes on, not fear of the gods because they concluded it was alike to worship or not worship, foreseeing that alike they all perished. Nor obedience to the laws mattered 
because no man expected that life would last long enough to receive punishment for his crime. End quote. Sadly, the people's behavior revealed their lack of an eternal hope or an awareness of their accountability after death. And I'm struck by how similar the situation was in Athens as it is today. I still think of the college student that was interviewed in Florida during spring break uh, on the news when he said, whether I get the virus or not, I don't really care. I'm still going to party. But in total contrast to this, I encourage you with the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, that what matters is the afterlife. What matters is whether or not we will be resurrected with Christ And if you know Christ as your Savior, you will be. And as you look beyond the very real struggles of life that multiply as we obey God's leading, I challenge you with these verses in closing. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For these things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, I thank you that it it is true, that we can't see what is eternal, but they exist, it exists nonetheless. Resurrection with Christ, just in as much as Christ was raised from the dead, we can look toward our personal resurrection with Christ, even though we can't see it now, and we can bank on it. Father, we're losing days, we're losing weeks, we're losing time with each other. We're losing the opportunity to see young ones grow up. We're losing the opportunity for some of what might even be some of their last. But Father, we are so grateful that we look beyond this world. We don't do so in a pie-in-the-sky mentality, Father, but we do so because of the authoritative truth that you have shared with us, that Jesus has gone and that it's good that he goes away because in going away, he will return to take us to be with himself, that where he is, we might be also. And that's what we pray for, Lord. And we pray that you would use these present circumstances to bring even more into relationship with you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.